Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to uh, look at some uh, inspirational Christians, we just pray that you'll speak to us and that you'll uh, inspire us also to uh, do likewise. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I thought it was time to um, have a look at some uh, Christian uh, women saints and because we've looked at um, uh, a number of uh, men. We looked at Adoniram Judson and uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We looked at um, David Brainerd and the last time I think I spoke it was on um, George Muller. Um, but I thought we'd look at uh, three shorter ones today um, and these names will probably be familiar to you, at least the first and the third one. Um, Gladys Aylward is probably less known um, but um, I've chosen these three because they are really great examples of um, uh, presenting the gospel um, and combining that with um, uh, the, the requirement on all of us to meet the needs of those around us. So if we can start with... Um, I've got to figure out how this works. Which one do I press? That one. We'll start with Amy Carmichael. Um, she was one of the best known and respected uh, missionaries of the first half of the 20th century. Um, she wrote 35 books which have blessed countless thousands of people. And one person who knew her well gives this testimony. Miss Carmichael was a blessing to all who came into intimate and understanding contact with her radiant life. She was the most Christ-like character I have ever met and her life was the most frequent, the most joyfully sacrificial that I've ever known. Amy Carmichael was born in 1867 uh, into a well-to-do uh, North Island Christian family and she was the oldest of seven siblings. In her teen years she was educated at a Wesleyan Methodist boarding school and at age 13, while still in boarding school, she accepted Christ as Saviour. When she was uh, age 18, her father died, leaving the, fa the family in difficult financial circumstances as he had, a, had given a large personal loan that had not been repaid. The family moved to Belfast and there she became involved in visiting in the slums and seeing the terrible conditions under which many women and girls worked in the factories. She began a ministry with these women. It was a work based on faith alone in God and he met the needs in most remarkable ways and we saw that with George Muller as well, that he didn't um, ever go and solicit money. It was... Um, uh, oh sorry, um, James Hudson Taylor never solicited money but... Um, it was a, a faith-based work. She developed a good work among the women in Belfast and was then asked to have a similar ministry in Manchester. There, with her mother at her side, she developed a ministry among slum people and particularly the women and girls who were working under very terrible conditions. She received her missionary call in 1892 at the age of 24 and the following year, as the first appointee of the Keswick Mission Committee, she went to Japan. But there she met with disappointments. The Japanese language seemed impossible to her and the missionary community was not the picture of harmony she had envisaged. Likewise, her health was also a problem. After 15 months as a missionary, Amy became convinced that Japan was not where God wanted her. 
So without notifying the convention, she sailed for Ceylon. Just imagine doing that today. She was there for only a few months when she was urgently called back to England to care for a close family friend who was in a critical condition. After about one year in England, she returned to the field, this time to India. She arrived in Madras in November 1895, a discouraged, confused and ill young Irish woman. She was 28 years old. Soon after her arrival, she contracted dengue fever, which laid her low for a period of time. She was sent um, to a more healthful place to recuperate. She saw in the community where she, was, uh, where she was that the church was very active but there were no changed lives. She detested the meetings with other missionary ladies, drinking tea and gossiping, again showing very little concern for, you, for the eternal souls of those about them. She felt so alone. <clears throat> One day as she fell to her knees in despair, a verse that she had learned long before floated into her memory. He that trusteth in me shall never be desolate. And she found that to be true throughout her long life uh, of ministry in India. Amy just did not fit into the stiff, staid missionary community at Bangalore. She penned the following lines to describe um, the missionary community there. Onward Christian soldiers sitting on the mats nice and warm and cosy like little pussy cats. Onward Christian soldiers, oh how, oh how brave we are, oh how brave are we, don't we do our fighting very comfortably. Subsequently she went to the very south end of India to live with another missionary family. The Walkers were a godly family that really understood the Hindu religion and the tremendous need of reaching out to these people. For several years, Amy, along with <coughs> a daughter of the Walkers and several Christian Indian ladies, began an itinerant ministry throughout, through the villages in the southern tip of India in the state of Tamil Nadu. They were dubbed the Starry Cluster because the Indians recognised the sincerity and light that, shot, that showed forth from them. Their attitude was, how much can I do without that I may have more to give? It was during this period of time that she, looked, she took on the habit of wearing Indian dress which she continued throughout her lifetime. A life-changing experience that uh, took place in 1901. A little five-year-old girl named Pearl Eyes by Amy was brought to her by an Indian woman. The child had been sold by the mother to the temple and there she was being prepared and taught all the degradation of temple prostitution. Temple prostitution played a major part of Hinduism. The practice was known by the British who governed India and had been spoken against but nothing ever happened. However, through the campaigning of Amy and some other concerned people, temple prostitution was banned towards the end of Amy's life. However, we should add that it's still practised today. Twice this little girl had run away only to be caught, carried back, beaten and subjected to the terrible perversion of that Hindu temple. Finally, as she was running away again at night, she met with this understanding woman who brought her to Amy, who gathered the child up into her lap and picked up the rag doll and gave it to the child to play with. <clears throat> it was then that she really truly understood the evil of the temple practice. Little Pearl Eyes talked freely as she played with the doll. She told Amy things that they did to her in the temple, demonstrating 
them using the doll. The date was March the 7th, 1901. Amy never forgot that day nor the child's story. It was terrible beyond imagination. This was the beginning of her rescue of these children who had been dedicated to the temple gods. This incident led to the founding of the uh, Donova Fellowship. Over the years, literally thousands of temple children have been rescued and other ministries established there uh, in, southern, in South India. In 1918, they began to rescue baby boys for they likewise were dedicated to the temple gods and goddesses. Other areas of, of the work over the years were added such as hospitals, schools, printing and so on. Amy was not understood by many of the missionaries in India. She was also greatly resented by the Hindu priests uh, and was frequently taken to court on charges of being a kidnapper. She was greatly influenced by the life of George Muller and ordered her work on the same basis, never asking for financial help except as she winged her petitions to, to the God of all grace. In 1931, Amy had a fall that left her an invalid for the remainder of her life and she seldom left her bed. It was during this period of her life that she was most prolific in writing. Occasionally someone would wheel her in a type of wheelchair out onto a veranda where her children would gather outside and greet her and sing to her. Amy Carmichael died in India in 1951 at the age of 83. She asked that no stone be put over her grave. Instead, the children she had cared for put a bird bath over it with a single inscription, Amma, which means mother in the Tamil. From the time Amy set foot on Indian soil, she never returned to her homeland, 55 years without a furlough. Amy was very self-effacing and would never allow her photograph to be taken and never referred to herself by name or personal pronoun in her writings. Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. That was the quote from her. Gladys Aylward uh, was born in London in 1904. She worked for several years as a parlour maid and then attended a revival meeting at which the preacher spoke of dedicating one's life to the service of God. She responded to the message and soon after became convinced that, he, that she was called to preach the gospel in China. At the age of 26 she became a probationer at the China Inland Mission Centre in London but she failed the examinations. She worked at other jobs and saved her money. Then she heard a 73-year-old missionary, Mrs Jeannie Lawson, who was looking for a younger woman to carry on her work. Gladys wrote to Mrs Lawson and was accepted on the provisions she could get herself to China. She did not have enough money for the ship fare, but she did have enough for the train fare and so in October of 1930 she set out for London with her passport, her Bible her tickets and two pounds ninepence to travel to India, sorry, to travel to China by the Trans-Siberian Railway, despite the fact that China and the Soviet Union were engaged in an undeclared war. She arrived in Vladivostok and sailed from there to Japan and from Japan to um, Tianjin and thence by train, then bus, then mule to the inland city of Yangchen in the mountainous province of Shanxi, a little town, a little a little south of Peking. 
Most of the residents had, no, had seen no Europeans other than Mrs Lawson and now Mrs Aylward. They distrusted them as foreigners and were not disposed to listen to them. Yangchen was an overnight stop for mule caravans. It occurred to the two women that their most effective way of preaching would be to set up an inn. The building in which they lived had once been an inn and with a bit of repair work could be used as one again. They laid uh, up a supply of food for mules and men and when next a caravan came past, Gladys dashed out, grabbed the rein of the lead mule and turned it into their courtyard. The other mules followed and the muleteers had no choice. They were given food and warm beds at the standard price and their mules were well cared for and there was free entertainment in the evening. The innkeepers told stories about a man named Jesus. In the first few weeks Gladys did not need so after the first few weeks Gladys did not need to kidnap customers. They turned in at the end by preference. Some became Christians and many of them, both Christians and non Christians, remembered the stories and retold them more or less accurately to other traders at the other stops along the caravan trails. Gladys practised her Chinese for hours each day and was becoming fluent and comfortable with it. Then Mrs Lawson suffered, suffered a severe fall and died a few days later. Gladys Aylwood was left to run the mission alone with the aid of one Chinese Christian, the cook. A few weeks after the death of Mrs Lawson, Miss Aylwood met, uh, met the Mandarin of Yang Chen. He arrived in a sedan chair with an impressive escort and told her that the government had decreed an end to the practice of foot binding. Uh, foot binding had for centuries been the custom uh, where a woman's foot, uh, feet were wrapped tightly in bandages from infancy to prevent them from growing. Thus grown women had extremely tiny feet uh, on which they could walk only with slow tottering steps which they th- were thought to be extremely graceful and you may have noticed on the news the other day they had the last of these women had died um, these tiny feet that had been bound up from birth the government needed a foot inspector a woman who would patrol the district enforcing the decrees it was soon clear to them that both both that Gladys was clear to them both that Gladys was the only possible candidate for the job and she accepted, realising that it would give her undreamed of opportunities to spread the gospel. During her second year in Yangcheng, Gladys was summoned by the Mandarin. A riot had broken out in the men's prison. She arrived and found that the convicts were rampaging in the prison courtyard and several of them had been killed. The soldiers were afraid to intervene. The warden of the prison said to Gladys, go into the yard and stop the rioting. She said, how can I do that? The warden said, you have been preaching that those who trust in Christ have nothing to fear. She walked into the courtyard and shouted, quiet, I cannot hear when everyone is shouting at once. Choose one or two spokesmen and let, them, and let, them talk with, let me talk with them. The men quieted down and chose a spokesman. Gladys talked with him and then came out and told the warden, you have these men cooped up in crowded conditions with absolutely nothing to do. No wonder they're so edgy that a small dispute sets them off, sets off a riot. You must give them work. Also, I'm told that you do not supply food for them so that they have only what their relatives send them. No wonder they fight over food. We will set up looms so that they can weave cloth and earn enough money to buy their own food. This was done. There was no money for, 
the sweeping reforms, but a few friends of the warden donated old looms and, and a grindstone so that the men could work grinding grain. The people began to call Gladys Aylward Ai Wei Day, which means virtuous one. It was her name from then on. Soon after she saw a woman begging by the road, accompanied by a child covered with sores and obviously suffering severe malnutrition. She satisfied herself that the woman was not the child's mother but had kidnapped the child and was using it as an aid to her begging. She bought the child for ninepence, a girl about five years old. A year later, ninepence came in with an abandoned boy in tow saying, I will eat less so that he can have something. Thus, I Wei Day acquired a second orphan, Les, and so her family began to grow. She was a regular and welcome visitor at the Palace of the Mandarin who found her religion ridiculous but her conversation stimulating. In 1936 she officially became a Chinese citizen. She lived frugally and dressed like the people around her and this was a major factor in making her preaching effective. Then the war came. In the spring of 1938, Japanese planes bombed the city of Yangchen, killing many and causing the survivors to flee into the mountains. Five days later, the Japanese army occupied Yangchen, then left, then came again, then left. The Mandarin gathered the survivors and told them to retreat into the mountains for the duration. He also announced that he was impressed by the life of Ai Wei Day and wished to make her faith his own. There remained the question of the convicts at the jail. The traditional policy favoured beheading them, uh, lest they escape. The Mandarin asked Ai Wei Day for advice and a plan was made for relatives and friends of the convicts to post a bond guaranteeing their good behaviour. Every man was eventually released on bond. As the war continued, Gladys often found herself behind Japanese lines and often passed on information when she had it to the armies of China her adopted country. Uh, finally, she will send a message. The Japanese are coming in full force. We're retreating. Come with us. Instead, she determined to flee to the government orphanage at Xi'an, bringing with her the children she had accumulated, about 100 in number. An additional 100 had gone on ahead with a colleague. With the children in tow, she walked for 12 days. Some nights they found shelter with friendly hosts. Some nights they spent unprotected in the mountainsides. On the twelfth day they reached the Yellow River with no way to cross it. All boat traffic had stopped and all civilian boats had been seized to keep them out of the hands of the Japanese. The children wanted to know, why don't we cross? She said, there are no boats. They said, God can do anything. Ask him to get us across. They all knelt and prayed. Then they sang. Then they sang. A Chinese officer with a patrol boat um, heard the singing and rode up. He heard the, their story and said, I think I can get you a boat. They crossed and after a few more difficulties, Ai Wei Day delivered her charges into competent hands at Xi'an and then promptly collapsed with typhus fever and sank into delirium for several days. As her health gradually improved, she started the Christian church in Xi'an and worked elsewhere, including a settlement for lepers in Sichuan near the borders of Tibet. Her health was permanently impaired by injuries received during the war and in 1947 she returned to England for a badly needed operation. She remained in England preaching there. Miss Gladys Alwade, the small woman, Ai Wei Day, died on the 3rd of January 1970. 
And the last one is probably the best known, um, Corrie Ten Boom. Uh, she was born Cornelia Arnolda Joanna Ten Boom on April 15, 1892 in Harlem, Netherlands near Amsterdam. Known as Corrie all her life, she was the youngest child with two sisters, Betsy and Nolly, and one brother, Will- Willem. Their father, Casper, was a jeweller and watchmaker. Cornelia was named after her mother. The Ten Boom family lived in the beige house in Harlem in rooms above Casper's watch shop. Family members were strict Calvinists in the Dutch Reformed Church. Faith inspired them to severe, to, sorry, faith inspired them to serve society, offering shelter, food and money to those in need. In this tradition, the family held a deep respect for the Jewish community in Amsterdam, considering, considering them God's ancient people. After the death of her mother and a disappointing romance, Corrie trained to be a watchmaker and in 1922 became the first woman licensed as a watchmaker in Holland. Over the next decade, in addition to working in her father's shop, she established a youth club for teenage girls which provided religious instruction as well as classes in the performing arts, sewing and handicrafts. In May 1940, the German Blitzkrieg ran through the Netherlands and the other low countries. Within months, the Nazification of the Dutch people began and the quiet life of the Ten Boom family was changed forever. During the war, the Beige House became a refuge for Jews, students and intellectuals. The facade of the watch shop made the house an ideal front for these activities. A secret room, no larger than a small wardrobe closet, was built into Corrie's bedroom behind a false wall. The space would hold up to six people, all of whom, all of whom had to stand quiet and still. A crude ventilation system was installed to provide air for the occupants. When security sweeps came through the neighbourhood, a buzzer in the house would signal danger, allowing the refugees a little over a minute to seek sanctuary and in the hiding place. The entire Ten Boom family became active in the Dutch resistance, risking their lives harbouring those hunted by the Gestapo. Some fugitives would stay only a few hours, while others would stay several days until another safe house could be located. Corrie Ten Boom became a leader in the Beige movement, overseeing a network of safe houses in the country. Through these activities it was estimated that 800 Jews were saved. On February 28, 1944, a Dutch informant told the Nazis of the Ten Boom's activities and the Gestapo raided the home. They kept the the house under surveillance and by the end of the day, 35 people, including the entire Ten Boom family, were arrested. Although German soldiers thoroughly searched the house, they didn't find the half-dozen Jews safely concealed in the hiding place. The six stayed in the cramped space for nearly three days before the, being rescued by the Dutch underground. All ten Ten Boom family members were incarcerated, including Corrie's 84-year-old father, who soon died in prison. Corrie and her sister Betsy were remanded at the notorious, to the notorious Ravensbrück concentration camp near Berlin. Betsy died there um, on... Uh, December 16, 1944. Twelve days later, Corrie was released for reasons not completely known. Corrie Ten Boom returned to the Netherlands after the war and set up a rehabilitation centre for concentration camp survivors. 
In this Christian spirit to, to which she was so devoted, she also took in those who had co- cooperated with the Germans during the occupation. In 1946 she began a worldwide ministry that took her to more than 60 countries. She received many tributes, including being knighted by the Queen of the Netherlands. In 1971 she wrote a best-selling book of her experiences during World War II. In 1975 the book was made into a movie. In 1977 at the age of 85 Corrie Ten Boom moved to Placentia, California. The next year she suffered a series of strokes that left her paralysed and unable to speak. She died on her 91st birthday, April 15, 1983. Her passing on this day evokes the Jewish tradition, traditional belief that states that only specially blessed people are granted the privilege of dying on the day they were born. These are some of her um, well-known quotes. Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, it empties today of its strength. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. Memories are are the key not to the past but to the future and any concern too small to be turned into a prayer is too small to be made into a burden. So if I can conclude with some lessons that I think we can take from the lives of these inspirational women. Firstly from Amy Carmichael. Spirit-filled Christians reflect God's heart of compassion for the weak and the disempowered. This is is sharply contrasted with human-devised religions which often condone and amplify disadvantage. And if I can give you an example, the concept of the church's care of the poor was basic to the founding of the earliest hospitals. The hospital was, in origin and conception, a distinctively Christian institution rooted in Christian concepts of charity and philanthropy. There were no pre-Christian institutions in the ancient world that served the purpose that Christian hospitals were created to serve, that is, offering charitable aid, particularly health care, to those in need. But the list of charitable and social justice institutions founded on Christian principles and reflecting God's heart of compassion for the weak and disempowered go on and on. Christians are the agents of God's goodness in the world and the whole world benefits even if it fails to recognise the source of the goodness. But genuine works of charity flow from and are intertwined with the gospel and that's an important point. Um, Not distinct from it, Christians recognise the need to minister to the whole person, mind, body and spirit and Jesus is a really good example of ministering to the whole person. And I think we we see that in the life of Amy Carmichael. Um, From the life of Gladys uh, Aylward, as a rudder is only useful in turning a moving ship so God can most easily direct human vessels who are walking in his will. And I've got there the verse from Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lead not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. And so as we look to God and um, follow him that God can most easily direct us. 
And from Corrie Tim Boom, the power of God's love and forgiveness is able to overcome evil and the bitterness that can flow from personal hardship. And I'm sure most of us uh, are familiar with the account um, from, uh, I'm not sure which book it is, maybe it was The Hiding Place, um, where she actually came into contact with a former guard from the concentration camp where she was interned. And at the end of the meeting, uh, she, he basically came up to her and said, um, uh, I, you, you mentioned Rose. Yeah, Ravens, whatever it is. Okay, I'll just read it. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there, but he did not remember her. But since that time he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again the hand came out, will you forgive me? Corrie Tamboom said, I stood there. I whose sins had again and again had again been forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. How could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I'd ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And as I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, forgiveness uh, is not an emotion, I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand, I can do that much. You supply the healing. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. It's a little bit less known that uh, six months after her release, Corrie wrote a letter to Jan Vogel, the Dutch informant responsible for her family's arrest, who was in prison awaiting execution. She wanted him to know that he was forgiven for what he had done. From the life of Corrie ten Boom, we come to understand that only in God's power can that sort of forgiveness happen. And if I can just conclude, these women uh, all had their eyes focused on Jesus and um, all of them uh, are quite, quite well known. They're better known in heaven. And the question I have for myself is, 
how well known am I in heaven? How, I mean, it doesn't really matter how well known you are in the world, but are you known in heaven? Um, and that's a question that I think is, is good for us to ask ourselves um, and I ask myself that. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of these Christian women who um, lived their lives with their focus on Jesus and as a result they effected a wonderful change in the lives of so many. Father, we just pray that you will help us to be inspired by them and use them as an example for ourselves and we pray these things in your name. Amen.